of mixing things up, you know. So we're in Minneapolis, and there are 1,600 pastors there. And most of the pastors are staying in the Hilton right downtown. So there's this pastor's conference on prayer. And in the same hotel, there's another conference that's drawing people from all over the world staying at the Hilton. And that conference was, uh, let's see, it's called Gays and Lesbians Task Force. So there we were, just kind of an irony of a bunch of pastors and the gay and lesbian task force, you know. And at one point, uh, Dan Overby and I got onto a, a, an elevator. There were a couple other guys there, and two ladies hopped on, and they looked at us, and they said, um, so are you here with the task force? Uh, I didn't say anything, but I remember thinking in my mind, do I look like I'm with the task force? If I am, I got to change my fashion because I don't want to be mistaken. Anyway, um, it was interesting time, you know, there must have been a lot of conversations um, and I'm hoping that as they rub shoulders with Christians, they realize that, you know, we don't really hate people. We actually love people and, and we trust in the Lord and, and I hope some of those stereotypes were broken up. But that God has a way of, I don't know if you'd call it divine sense of humor, but he definitely likes to mix it up. That's interesting, but it's good to be back and great to have warm weather. Um, great to have warm weather. I like California. If God ever called me to the Midwest, he better write it on a wall or, you know, seal me up in a, in a plane and take me there in handcuffs because I, I love California. Anyway, that has absolutely nothing to do with what I want to talk about this morning. Um, I'd like to draw your attention to uh, John chapter 3. Uh, the Gospel of John in chapter 3. We're going to spend four weeks in this chapter and we won't get to... Um, for God so loved the world. Well, we might, but um, this is a, a kind of a second series to launch our, our new year. And um, so John chapter 3, we're going to be focusing on the first three verses, um, but I will read a little bit longer section. Let me pause and just ask for the Lord's help. Father, I thank you for the privilege and the gift of grace it is and the responsibility to bear your truth. Um, not something that's to be taken lightly. And I just pray for your spirit and your strength to deliver this in a way that is true to the tone and to the content of what you intend. I pray that in so doing, that you would humble us as people and you would increase our capacity to trust in grace and to know how you are the great mover and shaker of the universe. And it's only when you move that we move. So just enable these words to connect to the heart of your people. Not only do I need you to help me speak, we need you to help us hear and to change. And so, Spirit, do your work. Be our teacher this morning. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Now just a, a kind of a preparatory word here. Um, this particular message is a bit sobering. There's no other way to say it. But I believe it's exactly what the Lord has to say to the church. So that being said, um, let me just say that if you read through the New Testament, um, what you will find patently clear is that there is to be a marked distinction between the follower of Christ and the people who do not follow Christ. That is, there should be a qualitative difference between the Christian and the non-Christian. Now, for some, may that, that may be obvious, but sometimes we're so quick to leap to identifying ourselves as sinners, which we are, to sympathize and create a sense that we're not being judgmental, that we forget that there's supposed to be a distinctiveness to us, that, that people are supposed to see in our lives the way we treat people. They're to see a Christ-likeness. We're to have a flavors of Christ and the smells of Christ, and we're to be seen as distinctive people. 
Now, for most, I believe that that at least can be intellectually clear, and I'm hoping to make that even more clear uh, here. And perhaps I'm I'm stating the obvious, but I think it needs to be stated. And that is, you took a, take a look at the teachings of Jesus and Paul and Peter, three major hitters in the New Testament, and you realize that they teach that there is to be this distinction. And I could add text to text to text to text to show this. Christians are supposed to be different. But let me just grab three here. One well-known uh, teaching of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount is what is called traditionally Matthew 5.16 when he says, in the same way, let your light shine. Light as opposed to darkness, right? There's already a distinction. Let your light shine before others so they may see your qualitatively different good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. They're supposed to see something in his followers, something different. Paul says the same thing. Do all things without grumbling or questioning that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. And we live in a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. He's saying you've got to be different. 1 Peter 2 verse 12, probably drawing upon the teaching of Jesus above, he says the same thing. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. These three are simply a sample to show that there's supposed to be a difference between people who call themselves Christians and people who don't. A qualifiable, quantifiable difference and distinction amongst God's people, between us and the world. Now, on the one hand, let me say that I believe there are people who bear that distinction. There are people who have a genuine, deep hunger for Christ to know him. They love and delight in his word. They um, seek to love people in new, insightful, and wise ways. They want to sacrifice. They want to be more holy. There is this desire in them to become and be Christians. And I do see that. I don't just see it in the lives of Christians outside of Parkway, but I see it in Parkway. There are people that bear a distinctiveness to their lives. And I, I know that because I hear it second, third hand from other people who know you who don't believe. So there, are, there is a segment of the church that is bearing the mark of Christ. But then there is this perhaps greater segment of the confessing church, we'll call it the confessing church, those who profess to know Jesus, who bear no distinction or relatively little distinction with the world. That is, the difference between light, which we're supposed to be in darkness, which is what the world is, has, for some facets of the American church in particular, turned gray, and there's no difference. Um, A number of things could be cited in particular, and I run the risk every time of bringing up particulars of offending people who have failed in these particular ways, and that's not my intent. It's simply to point out particulars so you'll feel the traction of this point. Namely, that we have professing believers who are walking out on marriage without proper cause, very important underlined, without proper cause in alarming proportions. Now this one, I debated as to whether I was going to use it. I'm going to use it anyway. This some of the younger generation my generation and younger, who are confessing believers, see no problem using the F word in public, whether it's on a MySpace page or a Facebook page. 
Now, I recognize any time we talk about what words are wrong and right, there is, a, there is gray. I mean, what are you going to do with heck? What are you going to do with gosh? And some people say no, some people say yes. But is it, is it an overstatement to say that the most repulsive word in the English language used on the mouth of professing believers in public is okay? To me, that's a sign. Even if you don't categorize it as a sin, it's a sign. Another interesting conversation that I had with a, with a, a junior hire, eighth grade, boy. It's on a public school campus, and he got in an argument with some students. So here's a Parkway student, eighth grade, on his public school campus, and he gets in an argument with other eighth grade students. And the topic of argument was pornography. And the issue is, is it right or not? And this eighth grade student from Parkway, I'm glad to say, said it's wrong. It degrades and dishonors women, therefore it's wrong. Now the people opposing that statement were also professing believers who reversed the argument and said, well then, are you gay? Let's back that up just a second. So what you're saying is if I don't, if I say pornography is wrong and I don't indulge in it, then what you're saying is that I'm gay. That was the accusation leveled at someone as if it's normal and common for men to just do that. And if you don't, something's messed up. That's kind of where we're at. And those are amongst professing people. Now, those are particulars. Now, that has also been, been observed by researchers and writers, like the Barna Group statistically showing that the lack of distinction between a segment of the church, unfortunately, people view the church by their weakest link, and the world. There's an in interesting book written by a, a researcher writer by the name of Ron Sider. And he wrote a book. Listen to this title. The Scandal of the Evangelical Conscience. An evangelical is somebody, somebody who follows Christ, believes in the Bible, and believes he's the only way to heaven. That's an evangelical. The, uh, the Scandal of the Evangelical Conscience, conscience hyphen, what or why are so many Christians acting just like the world? That's the question in the title of the book. The Scandal of the Evangelical Conscience. Why are so many Christians acting so much like the world? A very important question. Why is there no distinction on a large portion of this thing we call the Christian church? An equally important question is what are we supposed to do about it? How do we, how do we curb the like, moral landslide or, or the moral, what we might think of as compromise? Well, one approach is to say, you know what we need to do? We need to do a whole series of like a thousand messages intensely and passionately arguing for absolute morality. This is still right and this is still wrong. Such and such is moral and such and such is immoral. And maybe if we just bolster up the moral truth of the Bible, then people will see that it's a problem and they will change. Now, there's something to be said for just simply articulating what is right versus what is wrong. But to approach the problem in that way, in my opinion, is to deal with symptoms and not source. Our behaviors, immoral behaviors, are like blossoms at the end of a stem. And to cut them off, they're just going to blossom again. So how do we deal with them at a root level? Moreover, if, if we haven't learned anything from the Old Testament, one thing we should have gotten from it 
is that moral regulations, thou shalt, thou shalt not, do not carry with them the power to change the heart. All they can do is condemn. That's why you needed a new covenant, because the old one was insufficient. Law can never change. Regulations can never change a person's heart. Rules, thou shalt, moral truth, doesn't have any heart change power to it. So how do you deal with it? How do, how do we deal with the lack of distinction in the church? And I'd be willing to say it's true of our church too. Well, Jesus, I think, gets at the root of it in this chapter. Because he takes us back to the source and the origin of Christian life. Like, to the very beginning. And with it, the beginning and source and origin of all true moral change in a person's life. So it's there I think we need to work and see, understand and believe because this is the, the heart of the matter in my opinion. But Jesus writes, he doesn't write, actually John writes and records the teaching of Jesus here in John chapter 3. As I said, I'm going to focus on, focus on verses 1 through 3, but I'm going to read for us verses 1 through 8 just to give you context. And this is, I think, the core issue. Chapter 3, verse 1. Sorry, I don't have the whole text up here. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one else can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. John records to us a very interesting encounter between what we might call a high-profile, high-powered Jewish man and Jesus. Now, the reason I say that he's high-powered, high-profiled is because John takes the time to tell us the groups he belongs to and who he is. And I believe it serves to make the essential point of this passage. This man named Nicodemus, is, is uh, three things are said about him. One is that he is of the Pharisees. Now, you and I are accustomed to thinking of Pharisee, the word, the name, in a negative light. We've had 2,000 years of church reflection on that name, and it's almost become synonymous with a legalist or a hypocrite. You're a Pharisee. That's like something really bad. But that wasn't the case in Jesus' day. Like, a Pharisee was a, was a complimentary title. Um, it meant you belonged to, like, a spiritual group that was passionate about the Jewish faith, passionate about moral integrity, um, moral purity, um, they loved the scriptures, they devoured the scriptures, memorized a large portion of the scriptures. So to be a Pharisee is to be deeply and profoundly religious and committed to God. So it was a title of honor. So he's, he's seen as someone who is profoundly religious, but it also says there that he is a ruler of the Jews. So in addition to his profound religion, he is also someone of political clout or standing which probably meant he was part of the council that ruled in Jerusalem, which is like a, a senator or a congressman or woman. So he had 
deep, profound religion, commitment. He had political power. And then there's this interesting statement that Jesus makes down in verse 10 about him. Listen to this. In his dialogue with this high-powered, high-profile Jewish religious leader, we read that Jesus says, Are you the teacher of Israel and yet do not understand these things? He doesn't refer to him when he's talking to him as a religious leader, a teacher of Israel, but he says, how can you being the teacher of Israel? Which gives the distinct impression that this man had a wide following, a teaching ministry that scope was huge in Israel. So he's a guy doing the conferences, writing the books, you know, he can hear his voice on KFAX. I mean, that's just the kind of personality he was. So and we easily just gloss over that in the reading of this, but it's highly important that here is a man who is deeply committed to his faith, a man of power and authority in a ruling class, and also one who is, who is widely followed in terms of his teaching. He was knowledgeable. So here's this high-powered person, knowledgeable, politically um, connected, and also deeply committed to his religion, and he comes to Jesus. Now, if anybody was going to get who Jesus was, one would expect someone of such great learning and great love for the Old Testament to get him. And he comes to Jesus, and he professes to know something about him. That's the next point. I'm going to kind of unfold this, because this is a rather packed little text. Get the point, you've got to kind of fold it back carefully. He comes to Jesus by night. It says that this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. It comes to Jesus saying, we know. We know that you're a teacher anointed by God because nobody can do the miracles that you do without the Lord's backing. He's got divine backing somewhere. So this man has at least enough wit to understand that what Jesus is doing is ultimately from the Lord. But when he says, we know. There's almost a sense of latent arrogance. Like, we figured you out. We figured you out. That's the impression you get from reading the text carefully. But you'll notice a little detail. That this high-profile Jewish man, deeply committed to his faith, politically connected, and a huge following, he comes at night. The question is, why, why would... Why would this high-profile man come to Jesus at night? Now, some people have argued that, that it's because he was afraid. He was trying to be sneaky. He didn't want to be seen with Jesus, so he used the cloak of night to sneak over to Jesus to ask him some questions. The problem with that particular understanding of why John chose to include the fact that he came at night is that there were a lot of Jewish leaders who came to him in the daytime. They didn't seem to have a problem with it. Synagogue leaders and so forth, bands of uh, uh, Pharisees came to him. It didn't seem to be a problem. But I think perhaps more importantly is that when the Gospel of John, the guy who wrote this wrote the book of Revelation, he loves images and he loves contrast between light and darkness. So you have this constant contrast within the whole Gospel of John. In fact, almost every time he uses day and night, light and darkness, it almost always has moral and spiritual overtones connected to it. Which means that when he says that he came to Jesus at night, I believe it's a symbolic way of saying he's still in the dark. Now, now did he come physically at night? Probably. 
But I think he included the detail just to cast that shadow. To, here's this man who comes and says, we know who you are. But the darkness gives the sense that, no, you don't. You're still confused and you're still lost. You really don't know who Jesus is. And that, by the way, explains why Jesus answers him the way he does. So here's a man who seems to come somewhat respectfully, thinking he knows who Jesus is. We know who you are. And then Jesus turns around and he speaks to him in a way that will expose both his ignorance and his need. High-profile person, thinks he knows, comes in darkness because he doesn't know, and then Jesus turns around, and he's going to, with a brief word, he is going to expose this man's ignorance and his need. Look what he says. He says, truly, truly, that's a way of saying what comes next is extremely important. I say to you, Nicodemus, high-profile, deeply religious, politically connected, big following, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless you've been born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, we have to slow down and do a little more mental work in terms of the kingdom of God because in the New Testament, the kingdom of God always centers on one person, Jesus. He is the king. He's come. He's in the line of David. He's come to bring deliverance and salvation to his people. He's come to enact the reign of God. So the kingdom is wholly centered on this person of Jesus. To get the kingdom is to get Jesus. To get Jesus is to get the kingdom. Now we've already, for those of you who are aware of the first three chapters of John, or two chapters of John, we've already been introduced to Jesus as one who was in the beginning with God and he was God. That he's not just a bearer of a message from God. He himself is the word of God is what he's introduced as. That he's not just come to give salvation life. He is salvation life. He is the kingdom. And he's come to bring the kingdom. So when he says, we know who you are, Jesus essentially turns around and says, unless this happens, you can't see the kingdom. You can't get who I am in any saving, life-altering way. You may think you know, but unless you're, and there's that phrase, born again, you can't see who I am really in any saving way or believing way. So here you have, again, what's it? High-profile man, knows a lot, comes to Jesus, says, I know who you are, but he's still in darkness. Jesus turns around and says, you can't see the kingdom. You can't understand me unless you're born again. That's what it says, born again. Or another translation is born from above. The word means both, and he intends both. Born again. Now, people outside the church or who aren't used to the church or Christian language, oftentimes when you think of born again, you think of crazy people. They're like writhing on the ground like earthworms in the middle of a, a deluge. You know, they're just out there on the sidewalk. That's what being born again is, strangeness. But it's not strange, really. I mean, birth is just a beginning, right? People are born, that's the beginning of their life. What he's saying is that there needs to be a new beginning, a new birth, or I think more appropriately, birth from above. That there needs to be an awakening, a new life, a, a new beginning. But here's the thing. It doesn't come from you. It comes from God. 
born from above. That this birth doesn't come from earth, it comes from heaven. In other words, heaven has to breathe a fresh wind into your soul to bring it to life. And that's one of the reasons, main reasons, Jesus came. To live, to die, to be raised. Not just to patch up the old creation, but to begin something new in the hearts of his people. New birth. New awakening. It's as if, and Paul uses this language in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It's as if God comes and says personally, directly, and individually to his people, let there be light. And light is called forth and sight is called forth. Life is called out of death and ears that were deaf are opened. That's what he does. But it originates with heaven, born from above born again. It's something God does in the soul to awaken a whole new sense of existence with new desires and new appetites so that a desire for Christ to know Christ, to devour and delight in his word, a desire to begin to love people in more effective and wise and insightful ways. These are, these are awakenings of this new birth. It's new birth. So until you experience that, You don't really get who Jesus is. Now, you may be attracted to him, as Nicodemus was. You may get the fact that he's a teacher. You may even like his teachings. But unless something happens to you, unless God, in a work of supernatural moving, awakens the soul and resurrects the spirit, you still are dead. Now, that runs contrary, my friends, to the way many people think about the origins and source of their Christian life. We often think that it resides and begins with us. So, for the intellectual, you might think that I came to faith because I, I, had, I set up a table and I threw out all the, the, the evidence of here's the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witness and here are the Christians and here are the Hindus and here are the uh, Muslims and, and here is the, uh, the Buddhist Material, and I'm going to sift through it all and weigh the arguments, and I'm going to pick the most reasonable and rational path. And you arrive at that, and you think, well, I became a Christian because I reasoned it through. No! Because that means it comes from you. Others think that perhaps they became a Christian because mothers and fathers were Christian. You meet a lot of Roman Catholics who think that they're Christian because they were born into a Roman Catholic family. But that, again, means it originates from earth. Others think of the Christian faith as as something that you join, like you join the Rotary Club or you you join the army. You know, you put up your arm and you say your, swear your allegiance. I, I, I promise to uphold the kingdom of Christ and so forth. And then based upon that, that, that decision of joining, you become a Christian. Listen, the Christian life doesn't originate with humans. It originates with the Lord. It originates from heaven. You are not, you do not join the Christian faith. You were born into it. And I will, this is strong, and you had no choice in the matter. I think about this. Jesus didn't choose the idea of birth for no reason. Which one of you um, who are born from your mother's womb ever made a conscious decision to be conceived? I'm going to be conceived in my mother's womb. 
You didn't. You weren't there to even figure it out. Or let's, let's move it forward nine months. Did you consciously think to yourself, you know what? I am sick and tired of being in this cramped place. It's dark. I have claustrophobia, and I just need out. And you made a conscious decision to push your way out into the light, cold world where a doctor gave you a spanking. I don't think so. <laughs> it wasn't a choice that you made. You were born by the choice of other beings. So what he's saying here is that you know where Christianity emerges from and faith and the source of it? It doesn't originate with you. It originates with him. He births you into it. He gives you life. And based upon that life, you then grow in the Christian faith. That has huge implications for how we understand the beginning of the Christian life and where true moral distinctive change comes from. It comes from a life that he gave us. So, coming back to Ron Sider's question in the title of his book, um, The Scandal of the Evangelical Conscience. Why are so many Christians living just like the world? He's talking about American brand of Christianity. Perhaps the answer does not lie in compromise. Perhaps the answer lies in the fact that there are so many people professing Christ who have never been born again, and therefore there are a lot of non-Christian Christians out there. And maybe that's just what we're seeing. A profession without a new birth experience of the Spirit of God coming and changing you from the inside out. And I believe, in my opinion, that's what's at stake. The roots of where moral change come from and the desire to be different and to grow comes from God. And we simply nurture and feed the life that he already gave us before we even chose him. And in fact, it's based upon that new birth that then we can believe, then we can trust, then we can choose. Because he first touched us, he first loved us. Now, I know that there are people here who, who have been genuinely born again. Because I said there is a genuine hunger for the Lord. That there is a delight in the scripture and you don't just know it, but you feel it. That there is a desire to grow in holiness and obedience, not to get approval from the Lord because he's already given you his approval, but simply to please someone that loves you and you love. Someone who feels compelled to worship the Lord. Because that's all the inner working of life bursting out. And I know that there are people here who are born again. God's life is in you and you're your job is to nurture and feed the life that God gave you. But you have to stop and ask the question, an important question, an eternal question. If you look at your life and there's no hunger for Christ, no desire for his word, no desire for fellowship with other Christians, no desire to see yourself grow in love for other people, it's missing entirely. And your life looks just like the world. You have to stop and ask the question, do I really have his life in me? I don't want to scare people, but understand that I don't take it for granted that everybody here is actually Christian, even people who profess it. It's possible you could be just like Nicodemus. You know a lot. You're attracted to Jesus, but no life yet. And if there's no evidence of life, that he lives in you, then the most important thing that you can do today is discover that truth. Christianity begins with God. It begins with heaven. And the most important prayer you can pray 
If you discover, and again, it's something that each of us has to wrestle with, with the Lord by ourselves. I can't control it. He's the only one who can control it, but he asks you to pray. The most important thing you can pray is open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart that I may see you, to see you high and lifted up and shining in the light of your glory, that I may love you and trust you. That's new life. You're born into it. And where that birth happens, moral change begins to happen. So this, really this message kind of has two possible responses. I mean, each of us should take time to question ourselves. Not all the time. I don't think we should self-examine every day. But at times to say, am I really, do I have this life in me? You know, I can, I can tell you, as God is my witness, I, I can't explain the things that have happened in my life. I can't explain why one of my sister believes, uh, doesn't believe, and I do. It's not because I'm smarter. We went to the same church, had the same parents, same experiences. One believes, one didn't. All I can say is that at some point in hearing about Christ, God reached in and hit a button that I couldn't push. He turned on a light switch I couldn't turn on. And then I wanted him. And I still want him. And I want his word. And I want to learn how to love better. Now, I have a long ways to go, but I know that life's in me. Life knows it's alive. So you ask yourself the question, do I See life in me. And if you do, give thanks. Feed it, nurture it, and let that life grow and dominate every sliver of your being. And if not, the Lord delights in a humble prayer of the contrite. who says, you know what, I, I am not born again. But I want to be. And that usually is the initial spark that shows you that God's beginning to work in your life. When you realize I'm not alive is the first sign that you're coming to life. So let's come to the Lord's table with that question this morning. As I said, it's a bit sober. If you know you're alive, come and give thanks and take the bread and the cup. I mean, Jesus died to make new creations of us. That's new birth. To regenerate us. That's new birth. Um, and if you're here and you don't know, then have somebody pray for you. Spend some time praying. This table really is for followers of Christ. It's a way of showing our dependence upon him, our need for his life. We feed upon the bread because he is our life, symbols of his, his life and death. Now, if you're new to us, um, we're going to start some music, and I want you to invite you, if you're a follower of Christ, to come on up. And, and our, We'll have three elders here. They'd love to just serve you and, and give you the bread and the cup. You can take it here at the steps. You can take it back to your, um, to, to your row. Take it as a family if you'd like. But ask the question and just new birth. Have I been born again? By the way, this is backtracking a bit, but this is interesting. Historically, you know, in the 18, 18th century, 1700s, in the preaching of one of the greatest preachers, they kind of launched a, a great awakening. Um, a man by the name of George Whitfield uh, came from England and he began to preach. At that time, our nation wasn't a nation. It was just a, a bunch of colonies. Uh, and the vast majority of them were Christians. But when he came here, he saw dead Christians. And so he began to preach and preach and preach. And you know what the central message was? You must be born again.
And it touched off the first great awakening in our country because people realized, I have not been born again. And it changed the culture and changed the distinctiveness of Christianity. And you can, Christianity, you can read about that in secular history books because he preached the message of new birth. So as you come to the table, just ponder the question and again, pray. And we're going to have elders over in this corner over here and this corner over here. And they're there because they're there to be prayed, uh, to have them pray over you. It might be something related to health, spirituality. It may be that you don't know that you've been born again and you just want somebody to pray for you. That's where they're going to be over kind of at these ends of these two posts. And um, please, please let us pray for you. Let me pray for the bread and the cup and then come. Father, we praise you and thank you for your goodness and grace. Thank you that you loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And you made us alive with Christ. It was you that made us alive, not us. And we praise you for that. And so, Lord, as we come to the table, may we once again be reminded that salvation is from you in every way, shape, and form. And to relish and to rest in that fact this morning as we partake of the bread and the cup. We pray this in the name of Christ Jesus.